you hurt animals in a movie and you know you're that's it yeah you're a bad guy what's up story geeks it's jay and i'm actually by myself hosting today because daryl is on vacation so you just get me unfortunately but i have some awesome guests so i'll introduce them in a minute on the story geeks podcast we love to dig deeper into geek stories science fiction fantasy and comic books and today's topic is digging deeper into Ant-Man. We're specifically going to explore the themes, characters, and thinking behind Ant-Man from the MCU uh, to discover what it reveals about justice, hope, fear, love, violence, and anything else that's critical to our fandom and the world at large. So it's going to be really, really fun. I hope you join our conversation. The best way to do that is to join the Story Geeks Facebook group. That's a fantastic place to continue our discussion on Ant-Man. And for you to share your thoughts about anything geek-related, click on the link in the show notes and request to join, and we'll let you into the group, and you can comment on all the stuff you want to comment on. And before you forget, click the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you listen to podcasts. You don't want to miss our upcoming shows. We have some really cool topics coming up. Some of the previous shows that we've done, we actually just did a Make It Better Jurassic World, where we explored the themes there and actually tried to make the movie better. We also had uh, NerdSync, Scott Nicewander joined us from NerdSync to dive deeper into Spider-Man from the MCU. Thanks for listening in. The Story Geeks podcast is produced by the Reclamation Society. I have two guests today. I'm really excited about both of them. The first is Justin Weaver. I'm really excited about being here. And, you've, and, and we always say that Justin Weaver is one of the most positive guests that we ever have, and it's so true. And I'm always thrilled to have you here. Um, how many times have you now been on the show? Is this your sixth time? I think it might be. I'd have to start thinking about each and every one of them, but I think this is about the sixth time. And the first time, two times, we filmed in my house. <laughs> that's right. I forgot about that. That's a that's a old school like trivia fact for the story geeks. Is that if you know that, then you are an old school fan for sure. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, I'm Justin. I am married to a wonderful redhead named Kim. She is a theater teacher, so we have all kinds of fun with stories and drama in our lives. I work for the Walt Disney Company. I, of course, don't represent them in any of my thoughts and opinions. Um, and I am, by education, a pastor. So I kind of come at these stories uh, as a consumer, sure, and as a story geek and as just a total nerd. But then I like to look for some of the deeper themes of worldviews and uh, theology and religion and philosophy and um, just kind of enjoy movies for the car chases and explosions, but then also walk away talking about what the relationships, what the themes um, have to say um, about the director's worldview and our life. So I just absolutely love this podcast and love whenever you guys invite me over. Oh, we love having you on. Um, the other guest I have today is another friend of mine, Tony Kim. Tony Kim runs Hero Within. If you ever watch our live show, I have worn Hero Within shirts. <laughs> I have the Wonder Woman Hero Within shirt. It's a fantastic shirt, um, and I highly recommend. I, by the way, no sponsorship here. I just highly recommend you go check it out. Um, why wouldn't you? So, Tony, welcome to the show. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about Hero Within and what you're up to. Yeah, so, you know, as a, uh, a passion hobby of mine, I, I lead a website called Crazy for Comic-Con, number four Comic-Con, and basically 
cover the world of comic cons and pop culture through going to conventions and various events and um, that's also where I tweet and do social media from and then uh, my day job is with uh, like you said my company called Hero Within I started a couple years ago we do sophisticated geek apparel Uh, we launched uh, two years ago with uh, the DC Comics license and then we just announced our Marvel license and so we are heading into San Diego Comic-Con unveiling uh, our Marvel collection for the very first time, so we're super excited about that, and I'm sure later on in the show I could share where you can find us in San Diego. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I want to point out is that when Tony says it's more sophisticated geek wear, the cool thing about it is all of the stuff that he produces, you can wear to work. Highly recommend you check out his stuff. Well, if, if people wanted to check it out, Tony, where would they actually go? Yeah, you can go to herewithinstore.com and then on social media, if you just search Here Within, you'll find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and all MySpace, you know, all those good places. So Awesome, awesome. <laughs> we'll, we'll, and we'll actually link to those in the show notes as well, so you can go check that out. You guys ready to dive into Ant-Man? I'm ready. Ant-Man in the, in the MCU. Uh, we've been, we've done several uh, we've done several deep dives into characters from the the MCU. We talked about um, Spider Man and we talked about uh, Thanos. We talked about Thanos, yeah, exactly. So we've been we've been diving into a lot of different characters. This specifically is is with Ant Man and the Wasp coming out, which I don't know if you guys have seen, but I have not seen that. Um, with that movie coming out, we really wanted to take a look at the first Ant-Man film and dive deeper into what themes are in that film. And I was shocked at the questions I was able to come up with because you think of this as being a very fun film. Um, and so the, uh, we won't dive like directly into those intense topics, but what we will do is I'll ask you guys, and maybe Tony, you can, you can answer this question first. First, do you like this film? Do you like Ant-Man? And then how do you feel about Ant-Man as a concept? And lastly, how well do you think that Ant-Man fits into this bigger concept of the MCU? You know, I think like many people, I was pleasantly surprised with it. I think that, uh, you know, no pun intended, but we had little expectations for this movie because, you know, it was, it came out at a time when it was really at the height of all the big names, Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, all that. And then they announced uh, these, these not even... They weren't even B team. They were like D and F team, you know, like <laughs> Ant Man and Doctor Strange and Guardians of the Galaxy. And, you know, all these characters that we thought this is just ridiculous. Like this is where this is where Marvel is going to have a misstep is is with all these characters. And so, but I was like, and like a lot of people, really surprised with how interesting and how fun the character was. And I think that you know, clearly there's it's it's a little bit more light. It's a little bit more fun. And um, but I think that it brought sort of um, a change of pace for the MCU and while some of the other films deal with a little bit more heavy heavy implications Ant-Man I felt like at the time at least it was um, you know kind of a palate cleanser I guess and Mm -hmm. and oddly enough it's kind of serving a similar purpose now that we're post Avengers Infinity War and uh, I I think this next Ant-Man movie will also kind of serve a similar sort of um, uh, kind of a, a a pleasant distraction after all the heaviness of that last last film, and so mm-hmm. so yeah, I, I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great, and really eager to see the next film. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What about you, Justin? I went into the theater with a giant chip on my shoulder because this was originally a movie that was going to be written and directed by Edgar Wright, 
and he is one of my very favorite storytellers right now, specifically visual storytellers. His Mm -hmm. editing and his shot composition is incredible. But when he separated from this project, that was where I felt like Disney and Marvel was making a big misstep and losing some wonderful talent in their storytelling. So I went into the theater with a big chip on my shoulder because it's not an Edgar Wright movie anymore, (laughs) but I really enjoyed it. I had a fun time. Um, It has a different tone to it, but I think especially at that time, they were making Marvel movies for different genres where uh, Captain America Winter Soldier was the old school Cold War espionage movie Mm -hmm. and this is a heist movie. Um, So I think... It's really fun that they're playing with different genres in the same universe. Um, I didn't know how I would feel about this fitting into the rest of the MCU. I love that it has the flashbacks to Tony Stark's father um, and Peggy being oh, in the yeah. beginning of this movie. Um, and even, But even at the end of the movie, I didn't know how it would fit in the MCU as a whole. So I was really happy with Captain America's Civil War when um, he being a part of that team brought a levity, Mm. brought uh, a sense of humor, but he also can stand toe-to-toe with his abilities and becoming Giant Man and all of that. So I'm, I'm excited to see where this will go and what, if anything, this will contribute to what we know post um the uh infinity war situation well think about how like how less of an impact his appearance would have been in civil war if we didn't have ant-man you know the the fact that that they could just jump right into it and you immediately get his humor and then his he played a a, you know a huge literally a huge part in that film (laughs) right it was because of a great setup in ant-man and in Ant-Man, we don't know that he can become Giant Man. So we go into Civil War just assuming he can become small and, you know, fight people that way. You know, we've already seen this. So even just that reveal that he can become that big wouldn't have been uh, nearly as impactful if he were a brand new character that was being introduced right now. Mm-hmm. Very true. Uh, I, I feel very similar to you guys, although I would say... I like this film. I think it covers some really important topics, which we'll jump into in a minute. I was, I'm was i not at all connected to Ant-Man as a superhero. Now, I will say I wasn't connected to Guardians of the Galaxy either. When that movie was announced, I was like, you have a lead character that's a raccoon? Like, I'm not into that. Like, that's going to be lame. <laughs> but that's my favorite MCU film by far. It's fantastic. Wow. Um, and this this film, I like it. I don't love it. I do like Paul Rudd a lot. Evangeline uh, Lilly is fantastic. Um, I do think they sort of fit into the MCU, the greater MCU. And like you guys talked about, like they sort of fill an important role of, like you talked about, Tony, you talked about kind of adding some levity to some of these deeper, darker things that the mm-hmm. MCU has been ex- exploring. Um, and I do think that that's important. Uh Justin, you talked about adding the different type of film. It's more of a heist film. I think that that's really important. But I will say this kind of film is not necessarily the film that I'm lining up for. <laughs> it's just it's just not. But I think they did it really, really well. And I do think that they covered some really deep themes, which makes me really excited as a podcaster because I love talking about that stuff. 
So I prefer a little bit more serious take. I really like what the Guardians of the Galaxy did. I thought that was fantastic. Humor, but also really diving deep into stuff. So I'm sort of in the middle. I'm, I'm happy that we have Ant-Man. I think it's a really, really good film, but it's not necessarily made for Jay Shear, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> um, so Justin, I'll start with you here, although we're going to ping pong around in different characters. So I'll have different, both of you guys talk about some of the different characters. I think this film is fascinating in that it spends some time contemplating the nature of good and bad people. So I'm going to read off a character name, and then I'd like to hear your personal perspective on whether or not the character is good or bad and why. And I have all of these in quotation marks <laughs> because uh, <laughs> good and bad are very interesting terms, I think, which I'm sure we'll explore in greater detail. So Justin, starting with you, Darren Cross. Is he good or bad? Yellow Jacket. I feel like he's a really <laughs> easy one to say that he's bad. I feel like we're going to need to stop at some point and just say, what do we mean by good and bad? You know, yeah. what criteria are we using? And we can have that conversation at some point. Yep. But I feel like I'm pretty much in the majority here just saying that he's a bad guy. He's, <laughs> he's bad. He's doing the wrong things for the wrong reasons. He uh, kills a gentleman in the bathroom. Um, he is has no problem with uh, doing experiments on animals, knowingly killing them and all of that. So I think he's, I, I'm very comfortable saying he's bad. <laughs> the moment when he kills the guy in the bathroom was almost shocking. Yeah. Because you're just like, what kind of dirtbag does that? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's very intense. So, so uh, Tony, you have any, do you have any controversial opinions on Darren Cross as, as Yellow Jacket? No, I think he's probably one of the least interesting villains in the in. Well, when it comes, Mar Marvel doesn't necessarily have like a, a stellar track record with villains, and I think he kind of falls in that lower echelon of the of those villains. And so he seemed like he was pretty two dimensionally evil. So yeah, mm -hmm. I, I would I would think uh, not much to say as far as yeah, yeah. He's an evil, evil guy. So <laughs> he's bad. He's I know bad. this was the easiest one on here, right? Like, oh yeah, he's bad. There's no question that he's bad. In fact. His motivation is bad, which is not necessarily true of all the characters out there. And the MCU in more recent films has done much better with this, with Killmonger and Thanos and Zemo. They're, the motivations actually are not necessarily terrible motivations. They're trying to accomplish good, but they're willing to compromise in order to get that good. But you can't say that about Yellow Jacket at all. His motivation is greed and personal ambition. There's no, there's nothing redeeming at all about that. Uh, and his actions and behaviors, there's murder you talked about. He's deceiving people constantly. And he's threatening people. So not only is he threatening people, the threats are real because we see him murder people. So he is most definitely a bad dude. And we are going to talk about, in the next question, we are going to talk about a little bit about what the film is telling us is the criteria for determining bad and good. We will get to that. But before we do that, um, maybe Tony, you can start with us here. Hope Van Dyne, good or bad? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think she's good. Um... Yeah, yeah. I wish I wish they gave her a little bit more to do in the movie, but I think well, the second movie obviously we're gonna get more of that. But you know, I think she definitely is the she's. If you want to put it in D and D terms, she's lawful good. So as far opposite spectrum as Darren Cross, I think you have you have hope. So yeah, that certainly she is definitely a, a good character. 
By the way, you know we have uh, an amazing guest when they use D and D terms. <laughs> that's like that's like given. That's like a given. That's like credibility times ten. Um, what about you, Justin? What do you think about Hope Van Dyne? I I think she's good. Uh, I think that she's at least got a little gray on the spectrum because she's also deceiving people. Mm. She's um, a little bit violent. She enjoys punching Paul Rudd. And, but, but then again, didn't we all enjoy her punching Paul Rudd? And so, but yeah, she's good. She seems to um, want uh, a certain kind of attention and love from her father. She wants the responsibility of being in the suit, but she's willing to help someone else do it. So there's a selflessness. There's a trainer aspect to her. I think she's good. Yeah. Yeah, I also have good, and I have good but edgy. Um, because there's this, there's a this sense to hope, uh, Hank Pym's daughter, uh, played by Evangeline Lilly, uh, and I, and by the way, I think vastly underutilized in this film. So I'm hoping yeah, that she gets sure. utilized more. Yeah. Um, so I totally agree with Tony on that. She, she could be used way more. Um, she's not necessarily altruistic. I mean, she has some agendas that I don't believe are necessarily altruistic. And she's dealing, which we'll talk about a lot later, she's dealing with uh, some pretty interesting dynamics, some family dynamics that she doesn't even fully understand. And so she's sort of reacting to some of that, which I think makes her a little edgy. I don't know if she ever crosses the line into bad, but like, like you said, Justin, there's some characteristics that she has that she's definitely not... Uh, you know, 100% squeaky clean good, uh, which I think is really fascinating. So, Justin, tell me about Luis, Kurt, and Dave. Are those guys good or are those guys bad? So, this is um, maybe a little bit controversial, but I'd say they're bad guys. Oh, <laughs> and really? so yeah, because I mean, they're super fun. They're they're kind of the guys that you could totally see yourself drinking with, or going to the movies with, or just hanging out with. But if we're thinking about motivations and ways of going about things, they're pretty self selfish and <laughs> right. they seem to be into some vicious things mm. like theft and <laughs> robbery and they're promoting right. this. And it would be one thing if we were completely convinced that they were the Robin Hood, they were the Aladdin, that you know, there's a reason for them. They're giving to the rich or they're just or they're stealing from the rich, giving to the poor, or they're doing this to feed their family and they have no other way but it seems that they just want to do it because they enjoy doing it they want to (laughs) up their status they want to have more things so just if we're going with the binary good and bad i think there's more bad there even though they're fun to watch really interesting okay what do you think tony yeah i don't think i can argue with that i think that's i think that's right on i think that um, they're the safe bad guy you know that they you know they're not necessarily hurting women children or puppies but they are <laughs> anything else is fair game and so yeah i think they are the, the 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 bad guys we're made to love so yeah um yeah i i i i said this is probably the toughest one on the list in my notes you know they're all criminals and these these guys have all been in jail or like are on the verge of going to jail at the same time we are most certainly meant to like them and root for them as characters. So they're just so fun. And to me, I think they actually are given pretty decent motivations. Their motivations are not necessarily bad. I don't, you, there's no indication, in, in, order, in, in this film anyways, there's no indication that they're out to do harm. Now, 
we would have to define what harm is and how their behavior would harm others because it does feel like their behavior is bad. So despite the fact that they seem like their motivations, stealing from people who are maybe wealthy and not giving back, uh, things like that, it seems like their motivations are kind of okay. Their behavior is definitely bad. So that puts them in this kind of, maybe to use D&D terms, they'd be like, chaotic good or something yeah. right like uh there, there's somewhere in that in that realm um which i think is really fascinating but they're so fun as characters and i think this is an interesting point to make as we get into the some future questions is are we supposed to root for good people or are we supposed to root for bad people and why so anyways we'll get into that some more but tony what do you think about howard stark well we don't get a lot and um i think in the the different iterations that we've had of Stark in the in the uh, various MCU movies, he's certainly has been portrayed as having good intentions, but he's a little bit of a uh, you know, he's a broken hero and fighting off demons as his son continues that theme. So um, I'm again, I think if you were just to say blanket statement, good or bad, I think he he is good. Um, he just has. Um, clearly he has a lot of demons that he's fighting with and that's affecting his work as he's as he's there to as, uh, to help form sort of the beginning of of um, you know shield and um, in in the past how he's been a part of creating things like Captain America and others I think he's got good intentions but definitely a very flawed and troubled individual mm mm Good. What do you think, Justin? I'd be right on track with that. I'd say he's good. You have him in contrast to uh, Mitchell Carson, who says makes some really lame crack about how um, Pym lost his wife. You know, and if he had mm. been in the right place, or I forget exactly the line, but he makes it personal completely unnecessarily. And Howard Stark pretty much calls him out on that and affirms Hank Pym punching this character, you know, slamming his face to the desk. So he seems to have more tact. He seems to be a classier guy. He is in this film for such a short period of time. But I think what you get from uh, that and his other moments in the MCU is that, yeah, he is a good person, conflicted, dealing with demons, like you were saying, but he's a good guy. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I I compared him immediately to Luis, Kurt, and Dave, but he's almost on the opposite end of the spectrum. So, so, so what I mean by that is Luis, Kurt, and Dave, they aren't rich, they're not famous, they're not powerful, and therefore we can kind of root for them because they seem harmless. Despite the fact that they're doing bad things, that their behavior is not ideal, we can kind of still root for them because we kind of can relate to them. I think Howard Stark is kind of the opposite of the people that we can relate to because he's rich and famous and powerful. Um, But we do get the sense that he's trying to do what he's doing through uh, altruistic means. In in other words, he believes in the United States and he's trying to support the United States in making better decisions. But those decisions we might even not agree with, that they're maybe helpful to the United States, but at the expense of other nations. And I think uh, this is is a really... (laughs) This is a really controversial thing to say, but he feels like a Trump cabinet member, <laughs> right? Like, like he feels like he's all in for a specific people group or a small collection of people groups, maybe a, maybe a nationalistic mentality. But that sort of makes him a villain to those who don't fit that criteria. 
which I think is really an interesting side to his character. And so I think the characters like Howard Stark and Louise and Kurt and Dave, um, they're they're fairly polarizing. I mean, if you've ever been, if you've ever had anything stolen from you, the the first thing you don't think is, well, it's probably just somebody like Louise, and he's probably just having a good time. Right. You think, dude, that was worth something to me, and you stole it, and you and, and you're you're misusing that. Right. Whether there is a distinction between robbery and burglary, where there wasn't a violence or a threat there's still an impact to you because you've lost an investment. You've lost something personal. Exactly. And it costs you something. So obviously like yellow jacket is super evil, but these other characters kind of fit in this gray area where they're sort of good, but they're sort of not great. So it's kind of an interesting kind of concept. Uh, So Tony, tell me what you think of Hank Pym. Is he good or bad? Yeah, this is an interesting one because I think this would be the hardest one to decide because we naturally want him to be good. He's the originator of the technology. He's the father figure um, uh, role in the movie. And um, he clearly has um, with, withheld the technology because of the, you know, the potential of evildoers taking advantage of it. Um, and he of course played a the original ant-man i guess in the um his role in the i guess the 40s during world war ii or whatever it was so um i don't know if it was world war ii no it's not world war ii was it i can't remember anyway whatever war he was (laughs) don't think he even specified it He, he was just doing heroic things in the military um but when you kind of think about it too he he is you know he's withholding this incredible technology and um i mean this is like has incredible implications when you really think about the potential of this technology of shrinking matter as well as expanding matter i mean this is like on a global scale this is changing everything imagine his ability to solve world hunger right because he can transport uh, food essentially that could feed a whole country he could put it in his briefcase you know and you think about wow like yeah I understand that he he had withdrawn himself because he lost his wife and the exploitation of technology and et cetera, et cetera. but wow like he's been sitting on technology that could literally change the world and he, he's been selfishly holding it back waiting for someone to break into his vault or whatever you know mm-hmm. so um, so I don't think he has necessarily a bad character or he definitely is not like uh, an evil doer but you know the fact that he's taken his later years and he hasn't been doing anything proactively with his technology uh, that's a little um, that's a little like upsetting Mm. so yeah Yeah, definitely yeah I, I think I agree that the intentions weren't malicious he wasn't seeking to not feed people he wasn't seeking to not solve world problems but he had the technology to do so much good and was sitting on it you know if it had been something a little more like the cure for cancer and hank pym had it and had locked it in his vault for 40 years or whatever we'd see that as a villainous act even if in his heart 
He's trying to protect his daughter. He's mourning his wife. You know, things that we can relate to and see that it brings some complexity to his character. And again, his intentions are not evil, but he's choosing, he's actively choosing to not do good by sitting on this technology. Mm. There was a deleted scene that uh, spelled out a little bit of what you were saying for me, where it was like you can fit an entire tanker ship of things in just one container or reduce all of the waste and rubbish and garbage of the world to a very small place and you know take care of so much of pollution there's so many implications for the technology of the Mm -hmm. pim particle that uh he has allowed the world to um just be in you know not chaos but to have suffer or suffering yeah to suffer that that he has the ability to solve and he's not. I mean, he could cure cancer because they could go in on a micro level and eradicate right. cancer from the bodies. You know? Yeah. Or, or, yeah, expand the cancer so they could, you know, take it out more effectively. Or, yeah, your, your way is probably better. Expanding the <laughs> cancer is probably not the way to go. <laughs> this is why I love doing this podcast because there are always things that the guests bring up that I just would not have ever thought of. Um, and I did not have on my list that he's withholding the technology. It didn't even occur to me that that's like such a terrible thing to do, but you're right. Um, I have on my list that Hank is definitely flawed, but I do think he's, he's attempting to do good with the, with, with the best he has of, of his ability to do so. Right. Um, he's definitely hiding the technology because he, he believed it would be used inappropriately based on his experience with Howard Stark and those other guys. Um, I do think that he is also really overprotective of hope, and that comes off as very patriarchal. Uh, we know why that is later, but we're not sure about why that is at the beginning of the film, and hope certainly has no clue why that is. Um, he's definitely deceiving those around him, but again, he has good reason to do that because he feels like those people will misuse what he has created. Uh, he the one of the worst things I think is that he totally manipulates Scott into being his lackey. I mean, <laughs> the way he treats Scott is very questionable at best, uh, if not just outright wrong. Um, so he's definitely flawed, but I do think we excuse that a bit because we know the position that he's been put in and we understand why he is the way that he is. They, the writers have crafted his character in such a way that we're able to, at least to a certain extent, go, yeah, we understand that he's flawed, but we also kind of understand why that's happening and we can kind of see why he's making um, the decisions that he's making. Specifically, you know, like the patriarchal tendencies are all related to the fact that he had an experience with Hope's mom that was devastating to him and that he cannot bear to lose Hope. So we kind of understand why he would be patriarchal in the way that he's patriarchal. So yeah, he's he's flawed, but he does seem to be attempting to do good, even though he's not totally succeeding on that. Um, so Justin, tell me about Scott Lang. Scott Lang. I think that he has a decent story arc. And so I feel like you have to answer this in two different ways. At the beginning of the movie, I would say he's the villain with the heart of gold. But at the end, I would have to say bad guy because I think that, again, we're going to we'll dive into this at some point. I'm just waiting for that trigger to be pulled when it's like, (laughs) what do we mean by this? But um, if he is doing the wrong thing, 
even if it is for the right reason. So he wants to provide for his daughter, so he's going to burgle. Mm. Um, I, I would still say that when it's not an issue of life and death, you know, that she's getting enough to eat, you know, all of that. It's not stealing bread to feed her. Um, that there's still malicious things, that he is good at this burglary and he enjoys doing it to some extent. Um, it may be for some good reasons, but he's doing a bad thing. Um, so again, you know, very gray on the spectrum. And I think they were playing with that. Like how much do we make him a bad guy? He starts in jail. So they're making the statement that he does bad things and he has paid the price. And when he gets out of jail, he says he's not going to go back to it, but he does. And so I think there are some broken, uh, conflicted parts in him that want to love on his daughter. And the only way he knows how to do that or the only way that he resorts to doing that is through crime. So at the very least, I would say we start the movie with him as a bad guy because I wouldn't trust him. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Uh, Tony, what do you think? Um, yeah, I think I agree with that. I think he is... Um, what's really important about him is that he has a, gravi- a gravitational pull towards the shortcut, you know, but, uh, the get-rich-quick scheme, the... Um, you know, he probably hasn't worked an honest day in his life, and, and uh, so I think he has that... He does have that gravitational pull, but but he also has that sort of sense of great power comes great responsibility. And, and mm-hmm. now that he has this, the uh, he, he's the steward of the pin particles. Um, you can see that he's he, it's it's turning him into a different man. It's changing him, and, um, and we see a little bit of that um, with um, Civil War. That you know he's want to do something that matters that counts that's yep. you know and he's he's not wanting to just sit on the sidelines but he actually wants to make a difference and so not certainly not perfect um but certainly not bad either yeah and just going off of what you were saying the in the movie ant-man he could have easily gone in and robbed a bank with the technology that he had and we don't see him doing that mm. so it does seem that especially after he gets that technology he does become more responsible with it and makes some good choices with it but you're still leaning bad are you still are you... i'm saying he starts bad oh, okay he because starts bad. Sure. I, I think that he has a good story arc but just at the place he starts um it's a bad guy got know? it got it and that goes into some of the future questions that you're gonna i know ask. i know i know we're gonna jump into that too i think this is what's really fascinating to me and some of this is is uh you can manipulate with story and i will jump into this a little bit more in depth in some of the future questions too but we're definitely meant to root for scott there's not a point in the movie where we're not rooting for him um is he good i think so but he's very easily manipulated um and overall i think like scott or uh sorry i think like hank scott is good but really flawed and that's what makes great characters by the way characters have to have flaws when the characters have flaws that makes for a better character because we see ways that we can fit into the the same roles right um he's not flawed like hank is because he has an innocence that hank doesn't have we get the sense that hank is fairly jaded by his experience in life 
uh, Scott hasn't gotten there. Scott's not jaded. There's a moment in the film where I think that he makes some bad decisions because he experiences a little bit of jadedness, if you will, if that's a word, uh, where he says, um, wow, I really can't make it in this world the normal way, the way that everybody else does, so I'm just going to do my own thing, um, the way that I've kind of been successful in the past, uh, which is a total manipulation of Hank <laughs> to begin with. Um, so it's it's interesting. I think that he his misguidedness can actually make him put his family at greater risk, which is a total bummer. And I don't think he sees it that way, which is kind of interesting. But uh, I think overall we're meant to root for him and he's learning throughout. So definitely I'm kind of I'm kind of with Justin on this one. He's kind of bad to start with, but we kind of get into the good zone later on as we go. Um, so thanks for hanging with me on that question because that's kind of an intense question to start. The questions don't get any easier. <laughs> from there um and the reason why i'm focusing so much on this concept of being bad or good and i'm always putting those in quotation marks uh which you can't see but i'm doing air quotes um there's a really fascinating scene to me where scott's daughter asks her mother whether or not her dad is a bad person um so my question for you guys and i'll, and I'll start uh i'll start with you on this one justin um, how do you think the storytellers differentiate between a good person and a bad person? What criteria are they using? And would we be able to apply that definition in real life? Great question. Um, and his uh, ex-wife uh, responds with, no, he's not a bad person. He's just confused. Mm. And so she opens the door to this whole gray area. And the way that I read that the direction that I think the filmmakers were going was less on exactly what someone does as long as it's not violent as long as it's not malicious if it's for the right reason there is a redemptive quality to that even if it's the wrong thing mm. and uh, she's not endorsing it she is married to a police officer who is trying to pursue Scott through the entire movie because he is all justice, no grace, right and wrong, the letter of the law, you're going to pay for what you've done. And there's something in his ex-wife that is a little softer, a little more understanding, but still, I think, calling it wrong. So mm. um, just that she says, conf no, he's not a bad person, he's just confused. I think that she understands that he is a good guy. He's making some wrong decisions. And it seems to be more of an issue of intentions because there's not a malicious intent. He's not doing something violent. He's not just doing this to, um, yeah, be selfish. He's doing it to connect with his daughter. He's doing it to uh, make some perceived wrongs right. And um, he's confused. And uh, like you were saying, going back to what he knows, I think it's Hank Pym that says, the moment you uh, things get hard, you go back to crime. And so one of his character flaws is he goes for the shortcut. He goes for the easy route. Um, so the movie itself seems to hold him in this gray zone where he's doing the wrong thing, but we know he's not a bad guy. Mm. Mm. And, 
And what, as far as like how that applies to the real world, I don't think we can totally apply that to the real world, especially when it comes to crime, because mm. it seems like I would go much more with the police officer character in this movie where it's kind of like, you robbed someone. Now you have to go to jail because <laughs> robbing people sends you to jail. You know? Right, 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 right. I like that. What do you think, Tony? Yeah, I mean, I think in the terms of the movie, the the uh, I'm sorry, I forget his wife's name. Do we remember his wife's name? I don't remember his Judy wife's Greer. Name. Yeah, Judy yeah, Greer, but whatever her I can't remember character's name, but I'll look it up. And, yeah. Anyway, I think uh, clearly she's you know her perspective is jaded because it's her ex-husband and um, I think in her terms she clearly sees being good and bad directly tied to his to to his works you know like his that because he's participating in um, this you know dishonest activity that means he's a bad person you know and and but as a viewer, I think it's different because we're in some way we sort of forgive that, and we're really looking at: does he hurt people? Does he help people? Um, does he help people who are hurting? You know, and, and um, so I think that uh, you know the, the question as far as you know is he the definition of like is he a you know bad person and how do they define it? Um, you know, I think that the um, the movie, ha- the in terms of storytelling, they have to um, make the audience sit with a little some uncomfortable uh, uh, tension. You know, they have to put us in a place where we feel like we're not quite sure. Is it okay to accept the fact that our protagonist is a thief? You know, and and so I think that them asking that question is great because it does kind of put you in this position where you're like, wow, is he a good person or not? You know? And, um, so I don't think it's an easy answer. It's an easy thing to answer. I think that, um, uh, there's, I think clearly, uh, a good argument that he's both good and bad. Yeah. And this is what I love about stories is that they have the ability to make us think deeper about these really relevant cultural topics that we go, yeah, what actually is bad and good? Um, and, I, and I took the question a little bit separate from just Scott himself. So, like, for example, I think the storytellers would say very clearly that greed and self-focused ambition makes you bad. If that's part of your makeup, that's Yellow Jacket. Yellow Jacket is most certainly bad. You guys talked about it earlier. He's not even three-dimensional. He's totally two-dimensional because he's just so bad. Um, I think physically hurting or murdering other people makes you bad unless you're forced to do it. There's some con- there's some consideration there for like, well, you might be forced to do it, and then you're like, we, well, okay, fine, we might like we might make a, amends for that because Scott does physically hurt some people, but he doesn't want to. He's just kind of forced to do it. Um, the interesting one here is that stealing or thieving or burglaring seems okay. So long as you're stealing from rich people, or at least it's made light of, right? It's made light of here that if you're, if you, if the people have the means, um, and we'll get more into this later, but if the people have the means, then it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like that's what some of the, the some of what they're saying here. Um, certainly, caring about your family and your friends makes you good. That message is very clear in this film. However, there is a there is a slight message in here which I, I really like, which is 
but caring about them to the point of removing their freedom as Hank does with Hope by not allowing her to be Ant-Man and not living into her full potential, that would be bad. So you should care for other people. You should want the best for them, but you should stop short of prohibiting them from doing things that they might excel at and be really good at. So I think that that's some of the criteria that they're using. I think for the most part, we can apply a lot of those criteria to real life. So one of the things that, one of the things that we do on the Story Geeks podcast is we, we make a very clear distinction between heroes and villains. And I think that this is more and more important in today's world because as we look at, uh, just take the concept of nationalism, right? There are, we had this, uh, this is what I like about the podcast too, is that we actually see real world examples of the discussions that we're having occurring. So this this last few weeks, we've seen uh, immigrants at the border uh, who are being separated from their families, right? If you were to take a strict nationalist view on that and to say, I care about my people who live in my nation more than I care about those people who live in that nation, you would say that um, that you could define uh, a hero as someone who does the best thing for their nation, even if it was at the expense of someone else's nation. The story geeks reject that notion, and I think we see it in a lot of char- in a lot of uh, superhero films and a lot of superhero um, uh, material is that they are above and beyond a specific nation, a specific creed, or a specific uh, people group. So I think you have to reject tribalism, you have to reject nationalism, you have to reject these things to be a true hero. Uh, it's very similar to a friend of mine the other day um, used the example of like uh, saying like the good Samaritan, like all oh, these people are good Samaritans. Well, an example of when we use that term and say good Samaritans, we're saying the people who our culture really dislikes, we're still going to take care of and treat with respect and treat with with goodness, if you will. Kindness, maybe is a better word. And I think that like that's the true definition of a hero is that you reject the notion that there are tribes, that there are nations, that there are, um, and, uh, that there are ideologies. And you say, I am going to do good for other people, no matter who they are. Villains, on the other hand, say, I'm going to do good for myself at the expense of other people or at the expense of my tribe or, or, or other people's tribes or other people's ideologies. And I think that that's pretty clear in this film, but there are times when it becomes a little bit gray. Uh, do we root for Scott because of his Robin Hood type characteristics, which we're going to get into in a minute? Um, or do we reject that because he's actually hurting someone else's tribe? We have to come to terms with those things, I think. And I think the film at least does a really good job of presenting things in a, in a complex enough way for us to have a really good discussion about it. So let me put it that way. <laughs> um, there is this scene in the film where Hope suggests that the particle has altered Darren Cross's Yellow Jacket's brain chemistry. And I thought that that was a really fascinating point in the film. Do you think that makes Darren Cross, Yellow Jacket, less responsible for his actions? Tony, what, what do you think? Ooh, you know, in an age where we're more... Uh, we have more awareness around mental health and mental illness. I think that really poses an interesting dilemma. And um, because, yeah, I mean, if clearly if he's not, res- you know, he's been affected by his environments and 
has uh, I mean, of course, from the movie perspective, storytelling there the, clearly the movie wants you to believe that he's evil, but at the same time, if he's a product of his environment, uh, whether it's you know similar to more recently like Killmonger, you know, and you think about the, his environment when he was growing up and losing his father and living on the streets and all that that kind of in some way sympathize with his plight uh, they don't they don't tell yellow jacket's story nearly as compelling but i think it states a good case that if he's been exposed to something that has altered his brain chemistry and you know maybe you know um you know maybe he there should be more understanding and compassion for his situation mm-hmm. um at the same time, he's murdering goats, and uh, you can't do that. Mm. You can't. <laughs> you can't hurt animals. You hurt animals in a movie, and you know you're. That's it. So there's no sympathy. You're for a bad you. guy. Yeah, you're a bad guy. Instantly. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's that website of like doesthedogdie.com because in movies, <laughs> it's it is more impactful to the general audience to see an animal die than a person totally. die because yeah. we see people die in every movie. Yeah. But yeah, when someone messes with animals that takes it to another level that's funny uh so what do you think justin Uh, how would you answer this question i i feel like i'd answer it pretty similarly where everyone's still responsible for their own actions and there are situations that make you more disposed to one um line of thinking one action uh or another so if there is an issue with his brain chemistry you know, going into a, a real world mode, I would hope that he'd get medication, that he'd get therapy, you know, that he would uh, take steps to um, assist him in getting back to a healthy place. So just like if someone grows up in a situation where they have an abusive father, they're probably more disposed to abuse someone else in their life because that's their life. And so like you were saying, it gives us a little more sympathy um, to his story, to his plight. And ultimately, I think we need to hold people responsible for their choices, even if they were somewhat disposed to make that choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating, right? Like, like if, if you were going to say that any character, if anything in the film made Yellow Jacket somewhat more three-dimensional, it would be that phrase that she utters. But it's just so passed over that it just doesn't matter. Um, and I took it more as a joke than uh, a, a serious line. So, yeah. Interesting. It wasn't until I was reading these questions that I gave that some thought. Yeah. I don't remember, it, it, I don't remember when, when when in the film was that. I'm trying to remember. It's pretty late in the film. Um, yeah. It, she's just making the point that he's getting more and more unhinged and he's getting more and more um, anxious and uh upping the security and so something's unscrewed in him um, and she blames it on that but even from what Hank said earlier you need the specialized helmet to protect the brain chemistry and he hadn't been shrinking himself so I was even confused about how it could have messed with his brain chemistry. Yeah it seems like a plot line that may have been abandoned or sidelined later on um, but see, we, we do this in the story geeks, right? Like we there's there's the uh, the, the line in uh, Empire Strikes Back that says uh, 
well, then I'll see you in hell, you know, right? Like, and I think, you know, we dive into that. Why? Because we're the story geeks. We go, that's probably a throwaway line that the writer didn't intend for us to spend a half an hour talking about. But let's talk about that because that's really fascinating to they, me. They have some concept of hell in Star Wars. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which, which, by the way, has only been doubled down on in their most recent films. Uh, which is really fascinating. But um, so I apologize if I, if I go on for a little bit long on this topic uh, because I did find it incredibly relevant given the, again, the last couple of weeks that we've had, last two, three weeks that we've had. Um, Roseanne Barr sent out a super racist tweet. I don't know if you guys saw this. Uh, she was talking about, um, I don't know if this lady was a political figure or what this lady was, but this lady was um, African-American and Roseanne Barr sent out a super racist tweet that was basically comparing her to a character from Planet of the Apes. Really, really awful stuff. Um, but then Roseanne Barr said, A, she wasn't trying to be racist and B, she was on Ambien and wasn't fully aware of what she was doing. So this is not like an excuse that we haven't seen before. We don't even see in the real world. And I think it's worthy of us to stop for a second and go like, wait a second. When uh, Evangeline Lilly's character, Hope, says this to Darren Cross, like, what exactly should we think about this? And I have seen research to show that our brains do develop ways of operating that almost precondition us to certain behaviors. So you talked about if you've been in some sort of abusive relationship, for example, you can then start to become an abuser. Why? Because your brain has been preconditioned to that behavior. Now, uh, the question is, what should we do with that? What does that mean? How should we judge someone based on the fact that they've gone through those things? Um, I think that this concept, the concept that we all do bad things, is of critical importance. Of critical importance to us as people. Um, I think it's critically important because it impacts our core belief systems. I don't think you can form a core belief system if you can't get around this particular issue. Uh, I talk often on this show about being a Christ follower and some, uh, two of the primary reasons that is, two of the prize, pr primary reasons that I identify as a Christ follower is that one, I have yet to find a perfect person, which means that all people are broken and or flawed. Um, so I would love to hear if anybody else out there has found a perfect person. I have not found one. And in fact, if you ever feel like you have found one, spend some more time with that person. <laughs> uh, so I believe that that is a core truth. In other words, um, there are no perfect people. That is a core truth of the world. And I believe that that's also observable, by the way. Now, it can be masked because sometimes our thoughts are what's terrible and our actions are what's acceptable. But even then, eventually everyone will do something bad. And when I say bad, I basically mean that based on whatever your own standard of bad is, you will break your own standard. You know, the only way to have no standard is to like, or the only way not to break a standard is to literally have no standard. And then other people would probably say, well, yeah, yeah, well, that's bad. Right. So it's, you, you, you work into a very difficult situation if that's your, your scenario. So I'm not even gonna, I'm not even going to define what a moral standard for anyone out there listening is, although I think we could. A lot of times I like to use the golden rule. Right. Like, would you like this to happen to you? OK, well, then use that as a standard. Um, but uh, I don't think that we're I think that we're not only we are all not only capable of doing bad things, we most certainly will do bad things um, and that we will most undoubtedly think bad things for sure. 
So that's one part of that, right? <laughs> that's my that's one of my number one core beliefs. Um, but corollary to that belief is the number two aspect of this, which is we're still responsible for every single behavior and thought that we have. So in other words, you are none of us are perfect. All of us are flawed. And yet we can't use that as an excuse not to be responsible for the things that we do or think. I don't think that those two things can uh, they, they can work um, uh, in, in other ways. So even if the particle is changing Darren Cross or Yellow Jacket's brain chemistry, he's still responsible for his behavior and his thoughts. We're not let off the hook for that. We might sympathize with another person some more. You kind of indicated that, Justin. We might sympathize with them. Um, and I think we most certainly should because we should see everyone else as broken and flawed. So we should sympathize with that. We might even be able to offer grace. And when I use the word grace, what I mean by that is that if we were to offer someone unmerited or undeserved favor or kindness, that's basically grace, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be kind to you even though you don't deserve it. Um, I think we should offer people more grace and kindness, but that doesn't as absolve them of the responsibility of the behavior or the actions that they took or even the thoughts that they may have took. Um, meaning, for example, I use Roseanne Barr tweet, right? I don't care if you didn't have uh, poor intentions or you didn't have um, a hateful thought. You did it, and it was hateful. Uh, so you've got to you've got to do something about that. We've got to do something about that. And I think actually, you know, ABC made a pretty big decision about that. So I think the reason that I'm bringing this up and the reason that it's so formative to my belief system, and I apologize for just going on and on about this is that those two things would make me completely hopeless because in this scenario i think that for broken and flawed people it's very easy for me myself to feel like yellow jacket at times hmm. i can feel like oh you know what i'm I've, i'm responsible for these things i've done some i've done these bad things um, and if I'm reliant upon my quote unquote good behavior to save me, then I feel like I'm in pretty big trouble because I'm not sure that that has any way to save me. And so that for me forms is very formative to guiding my spiritual perspective. Yellow jacket is responsible whether his brain chemistry is off or not. And yes, Yellow jacket is at the far end of the asshole spectrum. <laughs> like I think we can all admit that. Um, and most people won't be this evil, but I do think that everyone is responsible for their behavior and we don't get a free pass for that. that. We actually have to be responsible to that. So apologize for going on so long, but do you guys have any responses to some of that thinking? Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I think that totally makes sense. I mean, we, I don't think that we can't live in a society that is free from, from repercussions, but we can create a world that's, uh, is sympathetic and and understanding and is seeking to um, to create every opportunity for people to be redeemed and mm. uh, that we're that we're slow to bring judgment. Um, mm. But at the same time, yeah, I think you're right. That yeah, we have to have um, there has to be. Um, repercussions of our actions and I, I think certainly especially in Roseanne's case you know she she has not been one that has is new to controversial statements you know she's she has shown in the past similar to 
you know, maybe similar to Cross himself, that some some questionable behavior, and you know, she has said some things that has been hurtful, and she's not shown a lot of uh, restraint when it comes to her statements in public, and so controversy has followed her all her whole life, and so this was sort of the the straw that broke the camel's back, you know, and. Um, so, um, so yeah, I think that's, I think you're absolutely right. And, um, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I like what you were saying about how we're all flawed and how that makes a good character. Um, I forget which writer, I feel like it may have been Joss Whedon, was talking about how Air Force One isn't a good movie because Harrison <laughs> Ford is an unflawed character. He's like a Mary Sue thing. character? Yeah, 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 he, yeah. he never That's such he a, never great, has a great it. movie, though. That is a great I movie. I love that movie. It's it's super deep in my so heart. Good. But just as, as a character, uh, Harrison Ford only has, like, a physical journey, he, you know, from different parts totally. of the airplane. He yeah. doesn't really have much of a journey of learning about himself or caring about people or anything because he's just awesome, and I'd, you know, vote for that character in a heartbeat. Um, so... Uh, when we're talking about flawed characters, when we're talking about responsibility, when you start bringing up that you're a Christ follower, it um, it makes the idea of grace and redemption really powerful to me mm. because if we are responsible for our bad as well as our good, but if we're responsible for our bad and we have to answer for that in one way or another, and then enters something else, and then enters in this undeserved grace, this uh, opportunity for redemption. Um, I think that those elements play powerfully in movies, in stories, um, re religious or not. Um, mm. And many of the times when it's in a religious movie, it doesn't play very well at all. <laughs> it plays terrible, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think those are themes that resonate with people and are, are definitely powerful to me. And so, yeah, you're, you're talking about a lot of things that I was just sitting here nodding my head and listening. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I apologize for going on for so long. Um, we will get into redemption in a, in a second, though. So, I think that that's the second really important point to be discussed there. Before we continue, I do want to let everybody out there know that there are several ways that you can access more content from the Story Geeks. The first is our blog over at thestorygeeks.com. You can find our latest YouTube live shows and additional written content from Atle uh, Ashley Pauls. Ashley Pauls writes some amazing blogs. Um, in fact, some people only know the Story Geeks because of her blogs. <laughs> so they show up and they don't listen to podcasts. So they just read her blogs and they continue on with their life. But if you listen to the podcast, I highly recommend that you check out Ashley's perspective on the uh, blog as well. So that's over at thestorygeeks.com. We've got a lot of recent uh, shows that you might want to check out. We just talked about uh, Jurassic World. We talked about it on the podcast from a perspective of trying to make that film better. We're story geeks, so we care about stories. So we want to make stories better. Go check that out. But we also did a live show on it where Justin joined me and we talked about some of the ways that the audience would like to, you guys, would like to make Jurassic World better. So that was really fun. Um, all of that content, including the Spider-Man Dig Deeper that we did um, with NerdSync and uh, uh, Scott Nicewander from, from NerdSync, that's all over on our blog, thestorygeeks.com. Um, there are also some ways that you can support us. So we're over on Patreon. Patreon is a place for creators like us um, to be supported by fans like you. And so what we do in the Story Geeks is that we actually give additional content to our supporters 
um, when they give as little as $3 a month. So if you'd like additional content, if you like what, the, what we talk about, if you want to hear us talk about that more, in fact, I mentioned the Jurassic World uh, make it better. We actually have some more ways that we made Jurassic World better that are not on the main podcast at all, but that are on Patreon. In fact, we go on for an additional like 25 minutes, <laughs> which is really fun. Um, and so if you like that stuff, uh, if you'd like to get additional content, um, definitely uh, consider supporting us over on Patreon. The link to that is in the show notes. So check that out if you want additional content and you're feeling like you don't have enough podcast content, then go check that out. Uh, we also have a uh, t-shirt shop, or if you're in need of a coffee mug, there's coffee mugs on there as well. Uh, men's shirts, women's shirts, kids' shirts, they're all out there. So uh, it's a great way to support the Story Geeks um, podcast and the Story Geeks YouTube channel. You can go over to our merch store. It is shop.reclamationsociety.com. Reclamation Society is the production company that produces the Story Geeks. Um Obviously, if you're wearing a Story Geeks t-shirt, you are somebody who likes to dig deeper into lines of movies that maybe were meant to be throwaway lines, but we dig deep into them. So definitely check that out if you're into what we do. Uh, it's a great way to support us. And one final way before we dive back in, uh, we have another sponsor, Modern Mouse Boutique. Modern Mouse Boutique sells geek fashion accessories. They have some of the best mouse ears out there hands down, um, especially if you're a Disney fan. I mean, Justin talked about um, being a Disney employee. We have a bunch of fans in Southern California here that are Disney fans. Well, Modern Mouse Boutique sells a lot of awesome Disney stuff. If you use promo code StoryGeeks, no spaces, it's just StoryGeeks. Um, if you use that at Modern Mouse Boutique, you get 10% off and they will in turn support the show. So it's a fantastic way if you've been looking for some mouse ears, if you've been looking for some other geek stuff, head over there, see if they have anything that you like. Um, the mouse ears are like phenomenal. Like they are some of the best mouse ears that I've ever seen. So definitely check that out. Use code, promo code storygeeks, one word, storygeeks, no spaces. Use that when you check out and you will get an extra 10% off. Links to all of those things can be found in the show notes or over on our blog at storygeeks.com. And that is it for me interrupting and saying a lot of stuff that doesn't relate to Ant-Man. <laughs> Let's jump back into Ant-Man. Um, Hank Pym tells Scott that he believes everyone deserves a shot at redemption. Um, basically, everyone deserves a second chance. What is redemption and why does Scott need it, Justin? Um, so as I was thinking about redemption... I was thinking about just our responsibility. Um, I had a professor that spoke about vocation in a number of different ways, not only as gainful employment, but as your responsibility. Your responsibility um, with your personal um, abilities, your talents and skills, your responsibility with whatever finances and resources you have. Um, that we all have different responsibilities with these different vocations in all kinds of different ways, and one of them being our past. Mm. And so there is a somewhat throwaway line that pays off a little bit, <laughs> but um, that Scott Lang has a master's in electrical engineering, and we see him working with wires a couple times. So that's one of his responsibilities, that he has this whole ability to work with computers and wires and all of that. He also has that gray area uh, vocation um, past 
of being a burglar. Mm. Um, and so just that he can use the his skills as a burglar um, to do something good is a good example of redemption, that he's able to take something that was bad and make it good, turn something that was used to break things into something that uh, is used to save lives, ultimately, that uh, would have been in jeopardy had the yellow jacket suit and um, tech gotten out on the market. Um, So I think that redemption ultimately comes down to an individual or an institution using their resources uh, in a way that is life-giving, specifically when those same things had been used, uh, not necessarily to take lives, but uh, not in an altruistic way, in a selfish way. So, yeah, taking something that was bad, using the same thing, doing it good. So that's Mm. how I kind of think of redemption um, and how I see Scott Lang's story getting redeemed. Nice. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, Tony, what do you think? What is redemption and why does Scott need it? Well, I think that uh, the theme of redemption, I, you know, I, I, I can't really think of a, a more greater theme that can be reflected in cinema. You know, when you really think of the um, our most adored and beloved movies all through, you know, movie history, they typically have uh, some type of a redemption story arc in it and however subtle it might be and I certainly don't think that Ant-Man is exception to that um, you know I think that the, where where we see film struggle and we and I think the, in the Marvel Universe where we see where we see the you know character struggle is where they don't really have a defined redemption arc and um, you know I think that's important because it's so relatable that um, we see these characters that you know they 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 might have a good heart and they might have good intentions, but for some reason they just keep doing making poor choices. And we who you know we all can relate to that. And I think that's maybe the, the criticism that we see with things like Superman. You know, I mean, he's he's pop culture's oldest hero, and re- regardless of if you know he he's one of my he's my favorite superhero but he's not many people's favorite superhero but if you were to ask people who's a quintessential superhero everyone would say superman you know because hmm. that's who we kind of see we idolize as a hero but when you when you dig deeper and say well kind of go into his redemption story it's tough it's hard you know because he's he is so perfect in so many different ways and so hmm. for for Scott, I think that his um, redemptive story arc, I think, is really important. And really, when you consider the fact that, um, you know, again, his upbringing, his lifestyle, his choices, his uh, the fact that he just has this incredible gravitational pull to selfishness, um, we have to see um, him make distinct choices to, to decide to do good versus evil, especially in light of his newfound powers. And so... Um, yeah, I think that there's not a greater story that we can tell as a people. Um, and I think that what what I like about um, Ant-Man, this movie, um, 
is that sure it's not about heavy themes it's not about you know uh, it's not like civil war or something crazy like that where it's about you know society caving in on itself or anything like that but it it does uh, tell a story that I think we can all relate to and that it's not about superpowers it's not about shrinking or getting big and small and fantastical things but it's about us fighting our inner demons and being at a point to where do we have the ability to say yes to doing good and so I think that's uh, I think it's a profound question and I think that I'm glad that they took that approach to it um, and rather than just making it a, a big eye candy spectacle I really like what you guys are saying. I mean, like it's very energizing to me, to, to me to hear you guys talk about that. So I really appreciate those perspectives. Um, I looked up the definition of redemption because so often, like we will use words, right? Like there was a um, we did a podcast on Raylo of all things, and people have been using like and we asked the question like, is Raylo an abusive relationship? And that uh, is, is like a super controversial <laughs> question, by the way. Um, and what's fascinating about it is, I think if you ask people what their definition of abusive was, it'd be all over the map. Uh, so sometimes it, it matters how we define the word. And as I was looking at the descriptions of redemption, one of the my favorite descriptions that I heard, and this is just from a Google search, right, uh, was that redemption was described as clearing a debt. Redemption is clearing a debt. I thought that was really interesting to me. Um, so in order for redemption to be an option, the character, in this case, Scott, has to have done something wrong because he has to clear a debt. Otherwise, he doesn't need redemption. There's no there's no reason for him to need redemption at all. So the concept of clearing a debt works really well in this case because it indicates that we're constantly adjusting with good acts and bad acts, right? So we need we're in need of redemption. We do something good. We get redeemed. We do something bad. We need redemption. We do something good. There's this kind of trade-off, and I think that there's this there's this um, hypothetical line somewhere in the middle where if we're above the line, it is to our credit and we're considered good, and if we're below the line, then we're considered bad. This is a hypothetical line. Where do you put that line? Uh, I think that's what Hank Pym means in this case. You were below the line that is inappropriate, you need to get back above the line. And that's kind of his definition of redemption. He needs to clear the debt that he has created. Um, and he's suggesting that this to Scott because Scott's been a criminal and a thief. And if that is the case, then you're below the line. You need to do some good things to get back above the line. The interesting thing about this hypothetical line though, uh, and we're going to dive even deeper into redemption because I'm going to ask another question about it. But the, the, this is what's so fascinating to me. This hypothetical line is where do you put that line? So if, if, if I said if I said to you guys, well, if you guys say 10 racist things to a person, but then told that same person that you loved them 10 times, does that bring you back to zero? Do you get to the line? Do you get back to, do you redeem yourself because you did 10 bad things, now you did 10 good things, are you now back to basically a zero? You're not a good or a bad person, you're just somewhere in the middle. If you murdered five people but then saved five people from a burning building, does that seem equitable? Um, it's, it's at least an interesting question for us to discuss. So my, my, my next question for you, and you guys can respond to my comments with this question too, is 
do you agree with Hank Pym? Does everyone deserve a shot at redemption? Why or why not? And how does that work? Justin, what do you think? Um, I'm going to go back to the racist comments question. Yes. Because I feel like just the intent and the purpose of those words matters more to me than the content of the words. Mm. Because... I would anticipate if someone says 10 racist things, they're probably a racist, you know? They're, they're, <laughs> right. This is a pretty strong correlation. But if you find out that that person had a gun held to their head and the person said, read, th- read these 10 comments, mm. and they were forced to speak these racist things, I hold no fault to the person that had the gun to their head. Even though they uttered those words, I don't see that as, you know, 10 bad things. So going back to that... Um, analogy, if that person actually said 10 racist things, I don't believe the I love you 10 times. Uh. And so this goes back to, you know, how do we even define good and bad? Um, And I define good. So uh, if we're looking at just a spectrum and virtue is at the top of the spectrum, I would define virtue loosely as doing the right thing for the right reason. And so if you're even thinking about, oh, I need to get back on the top side of the line, I feel like that comes to a pretty selfish place. You're Mm. not just saying I love you to that person because you're repairing a, a relationship that you broke in an altruistic, caring way. You're doing it in a selfish way because I have to say 10 good things now because of the 10 bad things I said. So I wouldn't say that in that situation, um, the 10 I love yous are virtuous. Those don't mm. actually get you anywhere because you aren't saying it for the right reasons. You're not saying it for the other person. Mm. Um, and then uh, on the bottom, this is going to be my soapbox for a minute. Yeah, on, yeah, the, yeah. on the bottom of the spectrum would be vice where you want the bad thing and you enjoy the bad thing mm. because it's bad. And that's where I think we see Cross in this movie. You know, he makes a snarky comment after turning that guy in the bathroom into mush like he loves that he killed this guy you know this isn't something that he's hoping that he gets away with and feels horrible about there's no conflict in him whatsoever this was an obstacle he removed it he feels good about it Mm. then where most of us live is in the middle and uh, one of my professors defined this as going back and forth between two spaces. Uh, one is that of continence, which is um, a medical term for, term for more or less holding your bowels, like holding it in, <laughs> doing, doing, like just not doing the bad thing, um, holding back from temptation or um, your natural proclivities, whether it's like we were talking about brain chemistry or you come from a family that is prone to alcoholism or abuse or whatever that is, um, just not doing it, holding it. But it's not that you naturally do the good and want the good for the right reasons. Mm. It's a it's a struggle for you not to do it. And that usually leads to a cycle with incontinence where this will leak out. There will be an acting out. There will be a bad that is done. Mm. And it is something that you may regret. It's something that you may wish you had never done, uh, something that may even be an exception. But like you were saying, everyone's capable of the bad. That's in all of us. Hmm. Um, We all make mistakes. Um, And so that line analogy doesn't sit very well with me because when I think of 
the virtuous person, the person doing the right thing for the right reasons, um, that doesn't play in with that line analogy because there has to be uh, the viciousness or at least the incontinence where they're doing the wrong thing um, because they in somewhere in there they want the wrong thing so mm. I don't know how someone gets back above the line in that analogy so <laughs> that's that's kind of how I'm that's what, a really quick view of some of my filters on um, morality and all of that um, so when you use the word deserves like does someone res- deserve a shot at redemption uh, it, it might sound cold, but it's like, no, because mm. I think that redemption and grace are these things that are given that aren't merited. They aren't something that you deserve. What you deserve is the consequences of your actions. Mm. And so when you're doing good and the consequences of your actions are positive and good, that's what you deserve right now because you've done good. If you're doing bad and the consequences of your actions are jail time, uh, hard relationships in your life, whatever that is, that's what you deserve because of these actions. So I think redemption and grace are not things that people deserve, Mm. but I do think it's wonderful when they come around. So you would say you don't agree with Hank Pym? I do not agree with Hank Pym. I want people to be redeemed. I want grace to be extended. I want people to learn. I want there to be that second chance. Those Mm. are things that I want for people, but if it's like they deserve it, I I think that goes against the point of redemption, the point of grace. These are things that you don't deserve. Interesting. I I like that a lot. What do you think, Tony? Yeah, I think it is interesting. Uh, I mean, from a from a purely human perspective, um, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, everyone deserves redemption, uh, and, and I. You know, I mean that I think people should try to be better, you know, and try to, to make good choices. And, you know, it's so funny how um, there's just something about seeing a bad person turn good that resonates with each of us. And yeah. Yeah. It's just something about that. Like when you think about, you know, the end of Return of the Jedi, and if you think about um, Darth Vader. He in literally in the last minutes of the film, he kills the emperor and he makes good with Luke. And he's a good guy. You know, we like kind of love him. But he was he was the the Hitler of a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? Yep. And so if we just apply it to real life terms and we were somehow magically able to witness Hitler's last two minutes of his life would we feel the same way you know if if he you know did some sort of you know grand gesture or something like that that was good um so i think in storytelling we want to believe in redemption i think no matter no no matter what no one is too far gone to be saved practically speaking i think it's harder you know when we have real life situations real life people even our own relationships, like there's so many broken relationships between, you know, uh, us and our parents or ex-spouses or whatever, the people that hurt us. And it's harder. It's harder to really believe that people, ret- it's, it's maybe easier in ideology, but it's, it's so much harder on a practical um, in, real, in real life. So, um, but I think there is something about that 
we want to believe. We want to believe that people can be saved. And so when we see it on film, we, we cheer it, you know, and we celebrate it. But it is really hard. Hmm. So I love what you guys are talking about right now. I think that it's really awesome. Uh, now I do apologize because I do have like literally a page and a half of notes on this on this question. So I may I, I'm definitely going to touch on some of the stuff you talked about because um, Tony, the example you give is actually one that I give as well. Because what do we do with Anakin Skywalker, right? Like what do we do with his character journey? Uh, Justin, I love the concept of saying like, no, you don't actually deserve it. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve. Uh, this second chance, this this shot at redemption. I think that's fascinating. Uh, I'll start by saying it's really fascinating to me as a writer to see how they set Scott up as a character, because there's this, there's this thing that happens as a writer. And this and my uh, my screenwriting professor told me this uh, in college, which is a long time ago for me, but because I'm old. Because but um, he told me this in college. He said he goes, uh, I had a character steal a car. My lead character stole a car. And he goes, lead character can't do that. I'm like, why not? He goes, because no one's going to root for your lead character if they steal a car. So what's fascinating to me is the way that they set up Scott because they um, they want him to need redemption because it's a core theme of the movie. Redemption is definitely a core theme of the movie. So they make him a criminal because in order to need redemption, again, clearing a debt, you've got to do something bad. But since they want us to root for him, they give him an, uh, a quote-unquote acceptable crime. Right. Like this is the this is the theory here. Like, you, you know, you stole, but you stole from rich dirtbags who were stealing from other people. OK, well, we kind of root for you then. We actually kind of root for you. We want you to have redemption because we don't actually see your crime as being that bad. We see it being kind of OK. The Baskin Robbins guy is sort of <laughs> yeah. the audience in that. I, I salute you. Oh, it's super cool. You're totally fired, but I think it's super cool. By the way, the deleted scene with that guy is so funny if you haven't seen the deleted scene with the baskin robbins manager you have to go watch that scene it's hilarious um but this this, there's this there's this setup there that we is pretty easy for us to want to see scott redeemed so that when hank pym says everyone deserves a shot at redemption and we apply that to scott we're like oh yeah of course like we totally want to see scott redeemed um but to tony's point if we had been told that Scott killed a group of kids, right? If he had been the Anakin Skywalker in the Star Wars prequels, um, suddenly it becomes very difficult for us to root for him, right? Like, dude killed a bunch of kids, and that all of a sudden, that what he needs to do in order to be redeemed skyrockets. If, you, if you're going to kill kids, you better do something amazing in order to redeem yourself from that. Cause it seems pretty irredeemable to me. So the question I, the first question I had in my mind was like, you know, are there things that you can do that make you irredeemable? And honestly, I don't know. Um, can anyone turn their life around? I quickly answer that question is yes. I believe that, that you can turn your life around, but can anyone be redeemed? Can anyone be redeemed? There are some things that it is so hard to forgive. There are some things that cut so deep that I'm not sure if it's easy for us to embrace the concept of redemption for those things. Um, I do embrace the concept of the hypothetical line when it comes to relationships. So it's interesting to see where you embrace the concept and where you don't. Because in relationships, in order, in order for us to have healthy relationships, we need to focus on being better people. Tony, you said that several times. Justin, you said it as well. We need to focus on being better people. 
when we take more than we give, our relationships suffer, right? Like, there's no question to that. Like, like the, have you guys ever heard of the term emotional bank account? Yeah. Yeah. So there's this term of emotional bank account. If you put good works into your relationships, um, then yeah, that's that's good. If you take take bad, if you do bad things, and then basically like take money out of that bank account, <laughs> then that's bad. You're gonna go bankrupt at some point if you keep doing that. Um, you'll have uh, you'll be bankrupt in your relationships. Um, so I think another way of asking this question, and it's a nuanced way. And I think I have to explore it from a spiritual perspective because the hypothetical line doesn't quite do it for me because it doesn't feel like there's a way to redeem yourself from killing the kids like Anakin does. I don't see a way for redemption in that kind of case, right? Um, The question for me becomes, what does it take to be worthy? So it's, it's easier to look outside of ourselves and determine whether or not we think a person is good based on their outward persona the persona that everybody sees. But I think that there's something deeper going on there that's very much in the spiritual dimension of what we won't see. And that's where I come to the conclusion that nobody is truly a good person. I talked about nobody being perfect, but given where our minds go, given how we think and behave when no one's looking, I would say that nobody is good. Nobody's good. Um, Because even by our own moral standards, we will fail. If we set a moral standard, there's a pretty good chance that we will not adhere to that moral standard. This is a stupid example, but the example I always give to people is Kobe Bryant should think that he could make 100% of his free throws, right? But Kobe Bryant can't make 100% of his free throws. He won't make 100% of his free throws. No one can make 100% of their free throws. It's impossible. So if you can't be perfect, are you good? Right then, now we're getting into these crazy definitions. That's why I asked the question in the first place. Like, well, how are you going to define that? You're going to define that maybe different than I define that. So, we might redeem ourselves in the eyes of our peers. If Kobe misses ten free throws, and then at the very end of the game makes the critical one, okay, fine. We might say, okay, in, in the eyes of our peers, we 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 feel like that's redemption, but. If I know somebody like Kobe Bryant, they're going to be kicking themselves for missing the previous 10. Because if they hadn't missed the previous 10, they probably wouldn't have needed to make the last one. Um, and so I think that, that we can easily see, well, I'm not worthy. I may have performed in that, in that way, but there's a bunch of ways that I have not performed that make me unworthy. Um, and that's where I embrace the concept of spiritual redemption, of being of the utmost importance. Because Scott probably does deserve a second chance, but I don't know if Anakin deserves a second chance, right? Like we go, Hey, Scott, like did a, he, he stole from bad people. Okay. And we're part of the 99% too. Exactly. Exactly. We're part of that 99%. We can see all the 1% doing all the stupid things they do with their money. Yeah. They probably deserve that. But Anakin killing kids, man, I don't see that. I don't see where you're going to be redeemed with that. Um, so he needs more than a second chance. He needs some greater redemption because he doesn't have the time or the space to do enough good to cover all the bad that he's actually done. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I sort of reject this notion that we'll ever be worthy enough of our own good works. Um, you, you, want to, you want to respond to that real quick? Uh, just one thought yeah. that I was having with redemption and Anakin and going back to what I was saying about vocation and being responsible with our past and our abilities and things like that. 
a fascinating thing about that storyline is that no one else would have ever been in a place to kill the Emperor other than Darth Vader. And so one way that he was responsible with his past was uh, his horrible things had put him in a place where he was able to take out a greater evil. And yeah. he had a change of heart and all of these things, but it's just fascinating to look at his redemptive story just that no one else could have done that, and he couldn't have even done that if he hadn't killed these children. You know, which, again, is, <laughs> is an atrocity, but right. it's fascinating that it puts him in a place to do some good. Absolutely, absolutely. So... Um, I know that I get way too deep with this stuff and I apologize in advance. And one of the things I, I'm going to give my perspective, I really would like to hear other perspectives. So if you don't have a perspective that you share with me, please tell me what that looks like. Um, it just so happens that Justin has degrees in theology. So like there's no chance that, that like that um, we might have a different perspective, but ultimately we're probably going to land on some of the same spiritual core beliefs, but I know that not everyone listening to this podcast will. And that, that that hopefully will not dissuade you from listening. I just want to hear from you. I want to hear how you how you disagree with what I'm saying, um, because I can learn. I am always open to learning. But I want to bring up just this, is in the, in the Old Testament in the Bible, we're given this concept. The Israelites are given this concept of the Ten Commandments and the Law. And the basic concept of the Law is that no human being could ever live up to the standard of that Law. Right. You're not going to you're not going to adhere to it. You're going to break the law at some point in time. And the law is crazy intense. I, my, my entire right arm is completely tatted up. I'm breaking the law, dude. Like I'm I'm, I'm in big trouble um, in the New Testament. Jesus declares that he came to fulfill the law. In other words, there's no way for us to be worthy. We couldn't do enough things to fulfill the law. It would be impossible to do so. We could not be a perfect human being. It is impossible. We are not perfect. We are flawed. Therefore, you'll never make it. You'll never be worthy enough. You will never be able to overcompensate for that line. Wherever that line is, you will never get above that line. You cannot do it. Um, so whether we're given a second chance or a billion chances after the first chance, uh, we will never work our way to perfection. Kobe Bryant will never shoot 100% on his free throws. And that's where I think the idea of spiritual redemption comes into play. And Tony, you brought this up. It is so powerful in stories. The concept of redemption, especially spiritual redemption, is so powerful in stories. And obviously, as a Christ follower, I think the picture of Christ completes that picture. Christ lived a perfect life. We can't. He was worthy. We aren't. And when we had this, this fascinating statement that Jesus Christ, when he died, took all of the sin, all of the bad things onto himself, the only one who could be considered worthy because he never did a bad thing, took on all of the bad things that we did. So spiritual speaking, spiritually speaking, that's so powerful because now I don't have to be perfect to achieve spiritual redemption. And that's like this core tenet because I just said that everybody's flawed and everybody's not perfect and everybody's broken. And so that concept is really powerful to storytelling. Um, and I think it speaks so powerfully to love and the embodiment of love that a perfect person would take on our imperfection. Not that he had to, but that he did. The worst parts of us, our worst attributes and behaviors, and that he then tells us we're forgiven. I think that's really powerful. Um, so I do believe in second chances, but I think that those second chances do have limits unless you look at it spiritually, and I don't see a limit there. I think that Jesus meant it when he said that he took all the sin on his shoulders, even the most egregious ones, and that someone who is 
very aware of my bad behavior, Jay Shear's bad behavior, that's a very, very powerful picture of grace. Hmm. Um, and I think that even more than a second chance, Scott could use that, and I think it would transform Scott's life. And to just finally wrap this up in a little bit of a bow, because I know I've been going on for way too long, um, Vader gets that. Vader does not get redemption in the standpoint that he ever makes it back to the line. Vader never makes it back to the line. Not once. He he basically does a nice thing for Luke, his son, by the way. He killed kids that weren't his kids. He does a nice thing for his son and then chooses to embrace a spiritual perspective that is based on light, not dark. The entire way that he'd been embracing the perspective was dark his whole life. And then he changes and he embraces it based on life. And I, and I think it's on light and life. And I think that that's what's so impactful. So I'm really glad you brought it up, Tony, because I was thinking I'm on the exact same pattern. That spiritual redemption is far more important than any, any physical or natural redemption that he could have had. So <laughs> I went on for a really long time. That was good. I apologize. That was good. Um, any other thoughts about that? My favorite picture of redemption from films I'll, I'll just stick with the film even though it's not the best eh I'm, I'm sticking with the film uh, the most recent version of Les Mis with mm. Hugh Jackman um, his portrayal of Jean Valjean just first five mm. ten minutes of the movie um, he is ostracized from society because he's a criminal and it was a petty crime that we, we as the audience don't care about. He stole some bread to feed his family. That's like the best kind of crime you could ever commit, you know, when you're talking about a writer um, <laughs> making the um, a kind of crime that the audience will approve of. And But he is in a bad place. There's this priest that gives him shelter, gives him food, gives him attention, gives him love. And we just love that grace that was extended to him. But then Jean Valjean does the vicious thing and robs him. Mm -hmm. And he's caught in the act, so he knocks out the priest and runs away. And so if anyone is in a position where he should get what he deserves, it's Jean Valjean because he just robbed the man that gave him all of this unmerited grace. Mm -hmm. He knocked him out, you know, so he physically assaulted him. And so he's brought back in handcuffs by the police and they say, you know, hey, this guy said that you gave him this. How absurd is that? And the priest decides to extend redemption. So I, I agree that redemption isn't something that we can entirely do for ourselves, at least not in the way that you're talking about. It has to be something that's extended toward us, mm. um, especially in that spiritual way, because the priest in that moment decides you know yeah no he told the truth i gave that to him which is true because mm -hmm. he has decided to give him that gold um and uh gives him even more gold you know says hey you forgot these most important things and uh frees him so talk about a debt wiped away like you were talking about with redemption and that alters his life and he becomes such a source of good for the rest of the movie um, for the rest of the book, for the rest of the play. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, redemption is a powerful idea. And I, I think you're right that ultimately we can't bring ourselves over that line 
on our own it has to be extended to us from an outside force mm. um an outside being and that's why the story of christ is compelling to me as well hmm. yeah it's so interesting that it, that there's so many different things that form your spiritual perspective right so much of it has to do with some of the questions that you ask i know so i know i have friends who would basically say i'm atheist and i'm sure some of the listeners out there would say the same thing and and it was so fascinating is what what i see um when i when i think about the questions that most bother me i see things that lead me to christ when i see my friends who are atheists who ask really good questions those questions lead them to becoming an atheist. But I go, oh, that question is not that important to me. It's really of the utmost importance to you. It's not as important to me. This question is far more important to me. Mm-hmm. Like, why is this going on? So it's interesting to explore the questions. And I think we should, what I like, I like to do is I like to explore the questions that they're asking because it makes me then question, how is my faith being shaped? And in what ways is my faith being shaped that I should actually take a moment to stop and reconsider because my faith is not as deep or it is not as complex as it should be. And I should actually take a moment to consider that. So I hope no one, no one hears the podcast. You know, we dig deep into everything. We go into these topics. We share our opinions. I hope if you're hearing this podcast, what you're thinking is, okay, I'll consider those things. And you might go like, I think all those things are total bullshit. That's totally fine. But at least consider them with us and then bring up the other points so that we can know where you're coming from. Yeah. And I think at least for me, I'm more interested in truth than holding on to my beliefs. Totally. And so if I were to find out that my beliefs are not true, yeah, then that would be a good, that would be painful. That'd be confusing, yeah. but that would be good because yep. I'm not interested in holding on to beliefs that don't correspond to reality. And I've had it happen before to me, and it sucks when you think that something is true, and then it turns out to be not true, and you're like, "Whoa, what was I doing with my life?" That sucks. Um, any any final thoughts, Tony? Before I move on? No, no, great, great thoughts. Okay, I'm gonna start with you on this one. The film revolves around two families: Scott Lang's family and Hank Pym's family. So, what do you think the film has to say about family dynamics and the importance of family, Tony? Um, well, I mean, I think that the, the film's pretty overt with the idea, uh, that, um, there's nothing that we, uh, shouldn't do for our family. You know, when you think about, he's trying to, um, Scott's trying to change his life and create a better life in order to kind of earn the, the, the right to be his daughter's dad again, you know, and then you have, um, um, Hank who is trying to protect his daughter again, maybe his methods were questionable, but he loves her clearly. And, um, and then also he's, he's been, um, he's, you know, tragically been, scarred by the loss of his wife and he's trying to get back to her as well so you know i think that family does dive in pretty or the 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 theme of family and even the uh, ad hoc family that has been formed around uh luis and his the the posse and all that that you know they're they're there for each other they're they're thick and thin they're going to stick it out with each other um and um and then even the relationship between scott and hank you know that's very 
father figure like and it seems like that maybe Scott didn't have really the right type of um, maybe upbringing and you know you have you know Hank kind of playing that role to him as well and so um, you know I think that's the idea of like there's nothing more important than family there's nothing that there's nothing that uh, we shouldn't do to um, uh, we should we should be in a position where we sacrifice for a family. I mean, you kind of see that in the movie, you know, that it played out in, in a few different ways. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, and we've seen this in a few different mo uh, movies in the, uh, or a few different uh, films in the MCU, and think of like very heavily like in Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, it really is all about sort of a bunch of um, desperate and alone people coming together to form a family and even the Avengers, you know, same, same thing, different ideologies, different backgrounds, different beliefs, but they strangely need each other. So, um, you know, I think that we all can relate to, I mean, no one has the leave it the beaver Brady bunch family. We all have uh, weird, uh, you know, families, painful, <laughs> you know, a lot of pain, a lot of disappointments and, um, I think we all can relate to the fact that being a family is hard and being alone is easier. Um, but, um, but, you know, but, but we need our family and we need to be able to willing, be willing to sacrifice for that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I think the film really built upon that and uh, I think it's, uh, it does a great job at that. Oh, that's really good. I like that perspective a lot. What do you think, Justin? I think that this movie gives a lot of hope for broken families and imperfect families that there is room for growth, there is room for change, there is room for someone turning around and making a different decision and that that matters. So we see that in the relationship between uh, Hank and Hope that there's progression, there's change, their relationship is in a totally different place at the end of the movie than it was before. I think it's interesting also just in the divorced family that at the end of it, the four of them are around a table together. And so there's a, a unity that can be found in what even feels like an irreparable break, like, like a divorce, that there could still be mutual respect, mutual support, um, even if it is just coming together for Cassie. But then there's you know, uh, a cop and a robber sitting across the breakfast table from each other. Mm. And so I think this movie presents family as important and necessary and also presents family, yeah, not with rose-colored glasses, but with, you know, hey, there are a lot of problems and it can be okay and those problems can be overcome. Yeah, those are really great insights that I, I like a lot, and especially because both of you guys landed on a lot of really positive elements of family. Um, I, I love the I love the reference to Guardians of the Galaxy because that's not even a family that's related by blood, right? And that's a really powerful concept is that you can have a family that is actually not your blood. Um, and I think that's really really cool. A couple of things that stood out to me uh, was this concept of imperfect fathers. So both Hank and Scott are carrying these burdens of not being good enough, particularly for their daughters, because they both have relationships with daughters. And we talked about uh, whether or not Scott deserves a second chance. 
And it's so funny to me because Hope never even got a first chance. Mm. Like her dad wouldn't even give her a first chance, but he's willing to give Scott a second chance, which is kind of interesting to me. Um, and it speaks to that patriarchal kind of uh, concept, at least. Um, I think it highlights, I think there is a big difference between Hank and Scott because Hank carries fear of loss with him that I don't think Scott has yet. Uh but the patriarchal structure in both families is most definitely hurting both daughters. Scott's daughter still has an innocence about her, but Hope carries a lot of resentment that maybe Scott's daughter doesn't quite have yet. So the 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 Lang family is a lot more innocent than maybe the Pym family is. And some of that is just related to uh, the development of the, the family and how it's how it's gone. Um, I think one of the biggest lessons the film teaches us is specifically about family dynamics and the importance of being vulnerable with one another in your family, whether that's blood related or not. And the biggest way that this takes shape is that Hank doesn't describe to us why he doesn't want Hope to become Ant-Man. And we don't know until he tells the story of the wasp going subatomic before that happens we just think that basically hank is an asshole who doesn't want his daughter to thrive she's clearly the best person for the job and and even scott says that like why don't you just have her do it like we don't have a lot of time to train and, and she's pretty badass and i'm not um so i think that it's it's not until hank learns to be vulnerable that he starts to heal in himself and starts to heal his relationship with his daughter. Now it's coming from fear. It's coming from a fear-based perspective of I don't want to lose my daughter, so I'm going to be this way. Um, but it's not until he's vulnerable that they're able to really, um, even both characters, are able to empower their daughters to be something more. And both of you guys have talked about that at multiple times. Like we should thrive. We should. Uh, sorry, we should strive to be something more and to and to try and do good in the world. And Part of that's going to be being vulnerable about the areas where we're not good so that we do get a chance to thrive. Like you talked about, Justin, earlier, you saying we shouldn't just concentrate on not trying to do bad. Well, if we're not going to concentrate on that, we better be vulnerable with people, right? Yeah. So. And, and then just going back to that idea of vocation and responsibilities with our past Hank does a good by, sh by mentoring Scott. He does a good by sharing I've made mistakes. Don't make those mistakes. And you wonder if um, Scott's relationship with his daughter would have looked similar in some ways uh, mm -hmm. had he not been course corrected by Hank. And, you know, when he shares his mistakes and what he's learned. That's a great point. I love that. All right, last question. This is probably the most ridiculous question that uh, is on this list of questions, <laughs> although I've asked some pretty ridiculous ones. Uh, this 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 film's gimmick relies on science or at least pseudoscience because the suit alters the difference or space between atoms, allowing the wearer to shrink and or as, we, as you mentioned, Justin, uh, to grow bigger in 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 Civil War. So the the one concept there is the threat of going subatomic, which Hank says will alter reality itself, and then. 
Scott goes on to show his friends the power of the suit, and he shrinks in front of them. And his friends immediately put paranormal or spiritual filter on it by referring to what he's doing as like gypsy, gypsy things or witchcraft. So my question for you guys, uh, as it relates to these concepts, this concept of going subatomic and altering reality, or this concept of spirituality as opposed to science. When you think of science and altered states of reality and the concept of paranormal or spiritual influences, um, as it relates both to the story being told here and our own experience in our own reality, what comes to mind for you? What do these things mean and why are they important to consider, Justin? Um, I think of two things. If you introduce technology to a tribe of people that are maybe in a third world country or you know indigenous or something that haven't seen technology it will feel like magic mm -hmm. it will feel like a god box and so it's just interesting having these guys in modern day america exposed to technology they're not familiar with having that sort of primal response um, and so many of the visuals when Ant-Man goes subatomic look a lot like Doctor Strange. Yeah. And that was fascinating to me because they got to similar places from totally different routes. And I don't really know what to do with this yet or what exactly Marvel's trying to say about this, but um, some of the subatomic realms looked a lot like some of the places that uh, Doctor Strange went to. And so I'm wondering if Marvel's kind of saying that there are different routes to the same place. One is technology, one is spiritual. And so even though we know in that moment where Ant-Man shrinks and they're saying, oh, it's gypsies, it's witchcraft, whatever, that we know is science, it's the Pym particle. At the same time, Marvel seems to also be sort of saying there is also something more to this, or there's a different route to it. And and again, I don't really know what to comment on. I was just fascinated that Doctor Strange gets there, not in a technolo technological way, in a very spiritual way. Um, yeah, so it's like multiple paths to the same place in Marvel. And again, I don't have a conclusion to that. It's just interesting. <laughs> right, right. That's awesome. What do you think, Tony? Um, you know, when you ask that question, what... what came to mind is that there's a world beneath the world you know and there's there, there's the perceived world that we're all familiar with that has sort of the standard um you know the laws of nature physics all that but um what's um what Scott's experiencing for the first time in the movie is that there's a whole nother realm that he's just unfamiliar with, you know, and a realm that has different rules and a realm that is, even though it's not perceived, it's not visible. It doesn't mean that it's any less legitimate and it's any less, um, it, it, it must be dealt with. Right. And, um, and so, you know, I kind of like that idea that there's a world that's kind of more than meets the eye or, and, um, you know, and I think there's a lot of spiritual implications to that when you kind of consider that there's more to life than what we can see. And so, um, you know, the movie doesn't get a chance to really dive too far deep into that. I think you're, I think you're right that there is a, there's some type of correlation with the Dr. Strange's universe and the 
parallel dimensions and all, you know, all that. And we, we may be seeing some of that in the next Avengers film or something like that, or possibly in the, in the next Ant-Man film. But, um, but yeah, you know, I think that's, I think there's an interesting theme when it, or a potentially an interesting theme to the idea that, um, there's a, a, there's a realm out there that can change your life. You just can't see it yet. Yeah. I love those two thoughts. Like the, the two thoughts that you guys are, are carrying on. And I don't have a lot of, a lot of different things to say. I will say that I do listen to Joe Rogan a lot. Does Joe Rogan has a podcast and I listen to it a lot. And he's consistent. He consistently has scientists on, and he's they're always talking about hallucinogenic drugs. In fact, the one, I started listening to a podcast today, and they're just talking about all these drugs and whether or not they should be legalized and whatever, blah blah blah. Um, but he takes it from a very spiritual perspective, especially with some of the hallucinogenic drugs. And I often reflect as I listen to him talk about those things. I think our reality is not as concrete as we might imagine it to be. And that within our reality, the spiritual resides and it's far bigger than we could ever imagine. Kind of like what you guys are just saying. Like you guys are just saying the exact same thing. Um, there's this sense that like Luis, Kurt, and Dave, that when we don't understand something, it's instantly paranormal or spiritual. Uh, or if you do understand it, it's instantly science. But I sometimes wonder if there's not as much separation between those two things as we like to make. In other words, what I mean by that is science deals in the measurable, right? That's like the definition of science is we can measure it. And it's been repeatable. We can say, you know, do that a hundred times. It will be a hundred times equal this thing. Um, but I think that sometimes spirituality is something that we just can't measure yet. And I wonder sometimes if we'd be able to one day, right? Like there's there's this concept of saying like, well, could, could, uh, could Stephen Strange start to measure what he's experiencing in the other planes of existence. Well, if you did it a hundred times and you can measure that that was happening and you can apply the same principle to someone else, suddenly that actually becomes science. Like mm. that realm, that plane exists. It is scientifically measurable. Mm. We can prove that that realm exists. Let's go ahead and do that. Um, I'll, I'll give one example. Did you want to, did you want to say something? I, I was thinking of two things. That yeah. There are things that we can measure that we still associate with a certain amount of spirituality, like procreation yeah. is something that science understands and is sometimes called the miracle of life. Yep. Or uh, weather patterns, something that we can measure, something we can predict, but is called acts of God. And so <laughs> right. it's just fascinating when there are some of the more supremely amazing elements of our physical existence that kind of have a foot in both realms, even in our common vernacular. That's exactly where I was going with it. So the fascinating thing to me, and that's just two extra examples, is that you know we have this concept that energy can neither be created nor destroyed. That's, that's, a, that's a rule of, of, of science, like energy can neither be created nor destroyed. And yet we have energy in our brain, what we might call a consciousness, though there might be some, you might be able to, you know, mince words with me there about what's what. But that energy leaves our body at some point. And in fact, I've seen it measured. So I've actually watched film where a human brain ceases to function. The energy leaves the human brain in an MRI or a CAT scan or whatever it is they're using, right? It just, it leaves, it just goes, boom, it's faded away. And the entire graphic goes from having like some blue and red in it because you've seen the MRIs and the CAT scans where they have that. And it just goes to being completely gray. 
and that's measured. The energy is gone. That person is dead. But energy can neither be created nor destroyed. So all that science hasn't done is figured out where did the energy go? Where did it come from in the miracle of birth? Where did it go after that, that miracle of birth? According to what we understand scientifically, it had to do something, it had to go somewhere. Um, and I think that that's interesting because to me, it's vitally important for us to remain open to science and the discovery of things that we could not comprehend or measure before, but then also be open to the spiritual because it just might be that the spiritual is something that we can't measure yet. And uh, even more vitally important, we can't measure it now. And so to be open to those perspectives of saying like, well, what can we measure? What can't we measure? And what questions are still on the table? I think is really, really fascinating to me. So any final thoughts on Ant-Man? <laughs> We've gone all over the place with this, with this podcast, but any final thoughts on Ant-Man, Tony? Um, yeah, I think just that Ant-Man shows that there is, um, a, it's got great potential. And I hope that wherever it goes in this next movie, that it does go deeper, that it does dig into some of these themes, that it's more than just a caper or a heist film or just a guy getting big or small. But, um, you know, I hope that it has, um, you know, dives in more into the redemption themes and the whole idea that there is also so much more in this realm besides what we can see. So, um, I, you know, I'm pleasantly surprised with the first one. Um, it's, um, you know, was uh, uh, Paul Rudd was just perfectly cast, and um, Michael Douglas and the rest of the crew just you know great cast, and so um, you know it was a modest success or success compared to um, how much it took to make it, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to the next film, and I, I, I hope that um, again I go in and I'm or leave pleasantly surprised. I just looked uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp up on Rotten Tomatoes, and it's getting 90%, so that wow. sounds good to me so far. Yeah. I'm pleased. I'm excited to see it. Um, uh, this conversation has cracked me up because I feel like <laughs> you have contributed many more thoughts than the Ant-Man, the film, contributed to this conversation. <laughs> um, but that, that's, been, that's been fun. That's been a ride. So... I always, I always love chatting with you. Yeah, it's it's always fun to, to dig deeper. Cause I mean, like I don't, I don't think that um, the reality is when I watch these films and I draw these questions out. These questions are inherent in the story, and what I love about that is our brains are wired to interpret and uh, understand and interpret the world around us through storytelling, predominantly more than anything else. Like I can give you facts and figures, but if I tell you a story you're much more likely to jump on board with it than you are just random facts and figures. And it's such a powerful medium for understanding deeper topics. And we can all come to different perspectives on what this movie is saying and what it should say and how the world should work. But the reality is the storytellers were building a perspective on the world and sharing it through this story. And so if we break that down, we can start to understand what that might look like for us. And I think that that's a really fun thing to do, even though sometimes it takes us on these really intense rabbit trails. It's still really fun. Um, so, Tony, do you have any Ant-Man designs coming out in your new licensing with Marvel? Uh, you know, we don't have any Ant-Man coming out right, right away. Our focus right now is Avengers, and especially since we're kind of um, in this gap between the two movies. And so... Uh, I would have loved to have done Spam Man. We had actually played with doing a 
an Ant-Man jacket, but it's really, really teeny tiny. And so just, just, <laughs> exactly. just, just as sort of a, um, a little trinket that we'd give out at, at Comic-Con. Um, it didn't quite work out, uh, but um, yeah, so not, no Ant-Man this time around, but you never know in the near future. Well, I wouldn't even be likely to, to purchase an Ant-Man one, but I'd be super on board for purchasing some Avengers stuff. <laughs> so, uh, and I and I really I really enjoy the um, the Wonder Woman the Wonder Woman button up that I have is is, is Great, awesome. So, um, tell us a little bit about where you'll be at uh, at Comic Con. Yeah, so we'll be at uh, booth twenty forty seven, and uh, which is kind of near the middle of the floor. We're just sort of uh, if you're familiar at all with San Diego. We'll be near um, a, a giant booth called Sideshow Collectibles, and wow. um, <laughs> um, we um, we are hosting a couple events. Um, one of our main ones is our uh, anniversary party. It's our second anniversary, so we'll be we'll be hosting a um, a big sort of dance party. You guys are definitely welcome to to join us for that. It's going to be on Saturday night, and then. Um, I'm on a couple of panels and I'm going to be on stage at DC doing some, presenting some of our, um, exclusives. We have a number of exclusives, which means items that you can, you can only first get at the show. So we've got, uh, several pieces coming out for, for that. And then our Marvel collection, which will be debuting at San Diego, uh, all available for pre-order. Um, and we've got multiple pieces for that, um. And so you can find us at our booth at booth 2047. And you can always find us at herewithinstore.com and then herewithinink, I-N-C. So herewithinink uh, on all the social. Ah, that's awesome. I, will, I, I can't wait to see the new Marvel gear. That's really cool. I'm kind of a DC guy. I mean, I love both, but I'm kind of a DC guy, but I'm really interested in seeing what, what you do with the MCU characters. So that's really cool. Um. I've, now, I will say this. I've never been to San Diego Comic-Con. How ridiculous oh, is that? Man. I would love... Uh, yeah, it's like one of those things where it's like it's just like so intense. But one day, one day I will get there. <laughs> Justin, where can people find you? Where can people follow you? Like, <laughs> We just talked about this. There is nowhere. I have a personal <laughs> Facebook account. And uh, I don't know. If you go to Disneyland, there's a good chance you'll bump into me at some point. <laughs> But uh, no, I need to I need to create more content so that I can have something to contribute to this part of the program. <laughs> <laughs> well, we really appreciate you having on the show, Tony. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Justin. Justin's gonna be uh, Justin's gonna be my co-host next week as well. So on the live show, he'll be with us. He'll also be with us. We're gonna be talking about Jurassic Park. Uh, speaking of Jurassic Park, we're actually gonna have Anthony Holder back on the show. So he's gonna be not only talking about Jurassic World and making it better, but digging deeper with us into Jurassic Park. Cannot wait for that. Jurassic Park, by the way, was came in at my either number four or number five. I can't remember. Top top geek film of all time. Mm. Love that film. Love that film. All right, that is it for today's show. Special thanks to Justin and Tony for joining us. Definitely go um, check Tony's stuff out. You, you will not be disappointed. Great stuff. If you're going to be at San Diego Comic-Con, definitely connect with him. Um, Coming up next week on the Story Geeks Podcast, I already mentioned Jurassic Park, Dig Deeper. Um, it's something that Justin and I will be working on. It will come out. 
uh, this podcast. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, you can go back and listen to our Spider-Man podcast. You can listen to, we had Helen O'Hara from the um, Empire podcast. We talked about Captain America throughout this, the MCU. Um, that got us a lot of attention and it was a great conversation. So don't forget to check that out. And don't forget to subscribe because we're having new guests on all the time. Diving more into Marvel and DC and Star Wars and every other geek property that you can think of. Um, and I mentioned this earlier, but be sure to connect with us on the Story Geeks Facebook group. The link is in the show notes. That way you can actually give your thoughts. So if you heard, uh, normally it's me saying crazy things. If you heard me saying crazy things, just come on the Facebook group and tell me that I'm crazy. That's totally cool. We love open discussion. Um, respectful discussion, of course, but, but open discussion about all these topics. So link is in the show notes. Every the other link that you need should be in the show notes if you want to check out uh, what Tony's doing his link will be in the show notes as well and if you enjoyed today's show or any of the story geeks podcast please share our show with a geek friend check out all our other content head on over to our blog at storygeeks.com and thank you for listening as always question everything in your favorite geek stories and always seek the truth